The Bible readings from Isaiah chapter 10, verses 12 to 27. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I will bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will be no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. Thanks be to God for his word.
Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see the church looking a bit more full today. Great. It'd be fantastic if you could have that passage open with you. You can follow along with us. Just want to draw your attention once more to the AGM booklet. Um, please do have a read of that. Have a pray through that as well. And if there's anything in there that's unclear uh, or that you'd like to ask questions about, uh, the elders and myself, we're, we're more than happy to uh, have a phone call with you, have a coffee with you, and talk about anything in there that you'd like to be more clear about. So just take note of those. Well, as we come to God's word, why don't we pray? Our Lord and our God, we know that your word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We pray that you do this for us today as your word is proclaimed, that we may know you more fully and ultimately, the, that we might enter your rest. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if there's, if there's one word which has felt annoyingly overused in the last 18 months, I think it's the word unprecedented. You hear people saying, yes, hallelujah. Dictionary.com named it the People's Choice Word of the Year in 2020, narrowly beating the word pandemic. From politicians to preachers, whether in print or in person, everyone felt the need to acknowledge how unprecedented the COVID-19 pandemic was. And according to one study of online news articles in Australia, um, over the period of the second half of 2019 to the, first, to the second quarter of 2020, uh, they noticed a 210% increase in the use of the word unprecedented in frequency in online news articles. The article itself was called Flattening the Unprecedented Pandemic Buzzword Pivot, and in that article, the journalist remarked the use of unprecedented during COVID-19 is unprecedented. (laughs) Unprecedented, of course, means something that's without precedent or something that's never been known or done before. And, of course, the jury's still out on whether the moment we're living in is, in fact, unprecedented. You know, for those of us who haven't lived through uh, world wars or great depressions or um, other plagues and pandemics and pandemoniums, it certainly feels like an unprecedented time. But the good news from our passage in Isaiah today is that God and the way he operates is in no way unprecedented. That is to say that the Lord calls us to put our faith in him, not just on bare promises alone, but with the generously added weight of his previous proven redemptive acts in history. In other words, God calls us to trust him to save us, no matter what, because he's, he's shown that he's absolutely capable of doing it. So we've come a long way now in the book of Isaiah. The the tiny nation of Judah is in an absolute mess in the late 8th century BC. They might be the last dregs of God's covenant people cowering in Jerusalem around the temple with with a son of David on the throne, but none of that seems to be doing them any good. The rest of the kingdom has been devastated by war with their northern neighbors, Syria and Israel. 
And King Ahaz, of course, even though he's a descendant of King David, he's a thoroughly faithless unbeliever. And he represents a people who themselves are faithless unbelievers. The prosperity and security that Judah had enjoyed under Ahaz's grandfather Uzziah had sadly just encouraged sin. So the rich got richer while the poor got poorer. Justice was bought and sold. Those at the bottom of the social pile were oppressed and disadvantaged, while those at the top gorged themselves on their wealth. And while there was plenty of religious activity going on, it was just self-absorbed and empty. And so all Judah has to look forward to is God's judgment. And it's going to come in the form of invasion, first from, from Syria and Israel, and then from Assyria as well, a brutal superpower. In fact, one of the first superpowers in history who would sweep away their northern en- enemies in a devastating destruction, but then bring, bring Judah itself to the brink of ruin. You remember the image of the floodwaters flooding into Judah and coming up almost to their neck. It's not a good outlook. Now, this brings us to our first point today. First of two points. First of all, look forward. The Lord judges sin. This is uh, on the service outline if you're following along. And just to say, the bit we've skipped over in chapters 9 and 10, it's mostly about the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel as God judges their sin. It's a warning to Judah to say, look, God, God takes this seriously. And then it's, uh, there's a warning to Judah about what's going to happen to, um, to Assyria. And then things begin to take a surprising turn in chapter 5 of chapter 10, reaching a peak in verse 12. So read with me from verse 12. It says, When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. The Lord's work on Mount Zion and Jerusalem is the just punishment of his own people's sin. And, you know, we must be very careful not to miss something very important about the Lord's justice here. His justice is always proportionate to the crime. It's never excessive. It's never lacking. It actually has an end. Notice that. But when he's finished dealing with the sin of his own people, and here's the surprising twist, he's going to turn his attention to the king of Syria, sorry, Assyria, and judge his sin as well. And what is his sin? Well, it's arrogance and pride. And we should remember from chapter 2 and chapter 5 what the Lord thinks of human pride and arrogance, haughty looks and lofty pride, basically the glorification of humanity. Wherever it's found, it will be made low and cast down, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, chapter 2. And verse 13 and 14, we've got an example of this attitude of the king of Assyria, boasting about his strength, his wisdom, his understanding, how great he is. And for this, the Lord promises he's going to devastate Assyria. Their soldiers will be struck with a wasting sickness, verse 16. The Lord will arise personally in glory and holiness to destroy both soul and body, verse 18. Notice that. It's not going to be through some massive military victory from the southern kingdom of Judah. 
The Lord himself will arise. And in fact, that's what happens further on in Isaiah. The Lord promises personally to bring such ruin upon Assyria that a child can add up and write down what's left. Verse 19. For Assyria, it's not a good outlook. Now, I think there are three things worth noticing at this point. And the first thing is that God takes sin seriously. He is a holy and righteous God who judges sin. This has been abundantly clear in Isaiah so far. God will not stand for human pride, essentially where human beings pretend that they are God. In fact, this is the root of all sin and always has been since Genesis chapter 3, that we think we can kick God off his throne and we can sit on the throne of our own lives. Chapter 10 tells us that the Lord will judge the sin of his own people and he will judge the sin of Assyria and its king. The Lord never leaves sin unpunished, so be careful who you fear. So that's the first point. God takes sin seriously. Secondly, stop regarding man. Stop regarding man. We need to notice here what these promises mean for Judah and how they were relying on Assyria for their security against their northern enemies. God's promises here are a warning not to trust in human kings. In fact, their trust in a human king is going to blow up in their faces, first as Assyria turns on them, and then as their supposed rescuers themselves are completely laid waste by God. should remind us of chapter 2, verse 22. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? It's a stark warning that it's not the one with the biggest army who wins. Only the Lord ultimately wins. So, be careful where you put your faith. Now, I said there are three things, and here's the third one. The third is that God has sovereign authority. This is a bit more complicated, at least it is to us. God may use the evil designs of human beings for his own good purposes, even though those evil designs invite his judgment. Or in other words, God uses bad things for good purposes and still retains the right to judge sin. Now, this spotlights a great tension that exists in the Bible. It's a finely balanced tension between God's sovereignty on the one hand and his justice and his righteousness and human responsibility on the other. And they're never actually in conflict. The Lord will use Assyria like a hired razor, chapter 7, and like an axe and like a saw and like a rod, as we read here. Before turning his judgment towards the axe, towards the razor, towards the saw, towards the rod itself, because Assyria is still responsible for its own sin before a holy God. Now, I've got to tell you that our passage today doesn't resolve this tension for us. How God can use sinners and their sin for his purposes without getting his hands stained with it is something we might never understand at least until we see God face to face. Uh, If you're in a Grace Community group this week, there'll be an opportunity to kind of explore this a bit further with some New Testament references. But while this passage doesn't resolve the tension for us, 
it does give us something very comforting and encouraging to consider. And that's that the presence of sin and evil in our world never means that God has lost control. It never means that God is asleep at the wheel. The presence of evil and sin in the world just means that there's evil and sin in the world. People are behaving as they have behaved since Genesis chapter 3. But it doesn't change the fact that God is still in charge and everything that happens is still part of his great plan and purpose for his glory and the good of his people, the people he's committed to. Now, Assyria wrote the textbook on being a superpower. Their king referred to himself as the king of the universe and king of the four corners of the world. There's a, uh, an engraving on the side of a cliff that you can go and visit in Iran today, which has the cuneiform writing of Sargon II, declaring himself to be the great king, the mighty king, the favorite of the gods, the king of the universe. It's not exactly a shrinking violet. He considered Israel's God nothing but a carved idol like that of the other kingdoms he'd conquered, verse 10 and 11. And as he marched on Judah, little did he know, but the Lord was using him to deal with the sin of his people and move them further along his great plan of salvation. And when that job was done, the Lord would deal with the pride and arrogance of the king of Assyria. He truly is the Lord of history. And this has been God's pattern over and over and over in the Bible. Perhaps the go-to verse or, or, or section of scripture about this is the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis. Joseph's brothers decide, no, we're going to chuck our little brother in a pit, and then we're going to sell him into slavery in Egypt. And eventually he rises to become second in command of Egypt and saves the, basically the known world from a famine and ensures the continuation of God's plan through God's covenant people. And what does Joseph say? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. When God's people were in exile in Babylon, that's when a lot of our Old Testament books were actually collected and collated by Jewish scholars so that eventually we could read them today. Where is the Babylonian Empire today? And yet, we hold God's word in our hands. When the Roman Empire subjugated most of the known world, they often made life very difficult for God's people. They crucified thousands of Jews. But they also built a transport network that allowed the gospel to spread rapidly in the first century AD. Where is Rome now? And yet we sit here in Australia in 2021 as recipients of a gospel that was spread far and wide on Roman roads. You see, friends, great world empires with varying attitudes towards the gospel have come and gone. Even the great British empire is just a shadow of what it once was. And the gospel has never slowed down. It's never faltered or failed. God's plan has never had a setback. It's never needed to take a detour. And more and more people continue to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ every day, even under very challenging situations. And, you know, even today as we turn on the news and we look at events unfolding in Afghanistan, and we, write, we rightly fear the evil likely to unmask itself more and more in the coming weeks and months. But let's remember that God is still in control and still working out his plan. And I won't speculate on why he's allowed this to happen and allowed it to happen now, 
But let's remember that he has given 20 years where a whole generation of young Afghans have had access to the gospel. I was reminded last week of a talk I once heard where a British missionary um, spent some time in the Middle East and saw some incredible things. And he said that in his experience, converted Taliban make excellent church planters because they did not sign up for an easy life. There's a thought. The Taliban is not in control of Afghanistan any more than the Allied forces were. God was and still is in charge, and who knows what he might still do there. The point never takes detours. While it might not be clear what he is doing, while things might get a lot worse before they get better, we can trust and find comfort in the fact that he is still working out his plan, that he is still committed to his people, and that evil will not ever escape his justice. Well, that's the first point. Look forward. The Lord judges sin. Next, we're going to see God telling his people to look back because he saves his people. This is our second point for this morning. Verse 20 to 27. So God is going to deal with Assyria, but not before he has dealt with his own people using Assyria. But as we move from verse 19 to 20, a redirection takes place using this idea of a remnant. A remnant. You see, Assyria will have a remnant, and so will, will Israel. Assyria will be left with a remnant, but it will be an embarrassment to them. So verse 19, the remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. And you know, Assyria eventually faded into history as they were swallowed up by Babylon, a nation that they thought that they had already taken care of. But then as we move into verse 20, we find that God's people will also be left with a remnant. Only this remnant will not be an embarrassment This remnant will be a credit to the Lord as the remnant learns to depend on the Lord alone, the Holy One of Israel. And you know, the use of Jacob in verse 20 and 21, it should make us prick up our... That's talking about not just the southern tribe of of Judah, but of all 12 tribes rejoined and the promise of that new light in chapter 9, beginning in the land of Naphtali. This is Longview stuff where God's people will be restored in, in a glorious way. But what are God's faith meant to do when faced with the destruction of the Assyrian invasion? And I think we should be getting used to hearing these sorts of words by now. The answer is there in verse 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians. Don't be afraid. Easier said than done, especially when faced with a kind of devastation when God's people were facing. You know, if you were a, a, a tiny Near Eastern nation invasion, kind of the combined might of, you know, China, the US, and Russia all together, it's very, very hard not to be afraid. And I mean, of course, God's got this plan for a righteous remnant to retread in chapter 6 as anything to go by. Even symbolically, less than a tenth of the nation is going to remain. Of course, a remnant by definition more, but surely there must be some kind of critical mass to the remnant to let it do its thing. Well, the Lord has encouraged his people to look forward to how he will deal with the arrogance of Assyria. Now he encourages them to look back 
and remember how he has always dealt with them. And he uses two particular stories from the Old Testament. So look with me at verse 24 again. Therefore thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb, did in Egypt. And on that day his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. Just to say that final line sounds a bit weird to us. It's a hard one to translate, but it basically means things are going to get a heck of a lot better. But here God is telling his people to look back in their own history to how he has dealt with them. And there are these two important Old Testament events that are referred to. The first one comes from Judges chapter 7, where Gideon and his army defeated the army of Midian. Midian, you see, had, had invaded and occupied Israel. And the Bible tells us that they were like locusts, too many to count. Every time Israel sowed crops, Midian would just come through and raise the whole lot. So Gideon raises up a rebel army of 32,000 men. And God says, no, nah, army's too big. And eventually the Lord helps Gideon whittle down his army from 32,000 to 300. And he arms them with torches, trumpets, and play jars. And if you've read the story, you'll know that Gideon and his embarrassingly small and uh, ill-equipped fighting force, they creep up to the Midianite camp in the dead of night. And on a command, they smash their jars to reveal their flaming torches and they blow their trumpets and they shout. And the Bible tells us in Judges 7.22 that the Lord set every man's sword against his co- against all the army. And the terrified and confused Midianites end up doing Gideon's job for him. They slaughter each other before fleeing uh, and, and, uh, and the, the whole, all the order falls apart. And so Israel was delivered from the tyranny of Midian. 300 men was not too small an army for God to rescue his people. Now, I think that example would be enough to show what God is capable of with a tiny remnant. But no reminder of the Lord's redemptive capabilities would be complete without referring to the supreme rescue event of the Old Testament, the deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And, you know, if the rescue from Midian proved what God could do with very low odds, a tiny army, the rescue from Egypt proved what God could do when the odds were impossible. It was in Exodus 14, the hand by the sea, and on the third side by the advancing cavalry regiment of Pharaoh of Egypt. There's no escape. And so what does the Lord do? He gets Moses to hold his walking stick over the sea, and the sea opens up. And his people walk through on dry land. It's a supernatural escape route when the odds were impossible. And so God's people do pass through, but when the Egyptian army tries to follow, in their chariots, the Lord replaces the water. And they're all destroyed and drowned in the sea. So we read in Exodus 14, 27, as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed into the sea, not one of them remained. 
But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hands of the Egyptians. God's people were rescued, even when things seemed impossible. You see, these are a reminder to the faithful remnant that they don't need to fear Assyria. And they can trust the Lord to fulfill his good purposes because he is a God with precedent. Now, we have in our hands this morning the word of God. In his word, we have his promises, promises of commitment to us as his people. And we have ample precedent to back up those promises, to give them credibility, to show that God can do this. But we don't look back to a rescue event at the Rock of Oreb or at the Red Sea. We look back to the supreme rescue event at Calvary, where the Son of God died to set us free from sin. And the Lord calls us to have faith in his ability to save us, come what may, based on this previous proven redemptive act in history. We read in Romans 8.31, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God says, trust me, whatever happens, because you've seen at the cross of my son what I can do. The death of Jesus is a supreme example of God using the evil designs of of wicked men to achieve great things for his glory. And when Jesus died, God hadn't faltered or failed. It was all part of his perfect plan. It was a victory. And it was a plan which made it possible for sinners like you and I to be brought into the presence of, of the holy God and become part of his family forever. Friends, the gospel's not just meant to save us. turn on the news or scroll the news feed. Just like God's people in Isaiah's day, things are likely to get a whole lot worse before they get better. But the gospel helps us sleep at night. The gospel lets us breathe. It reminds us that we are loved and we've been rescued and we are safe forever in Christ, no matter what happens. It reminds us that evil will not continue unchecked forever because God will judge sin. And it reminds us that no one can derail his plans, that he will even use the sinful designs of humanity for his own glory, and somehow it will not compromise a gram of his holiness and righteousness. We might be living in unprecedented times, but what a privilege then to belong to a God with such incredible precedent. How about we pray? Our Lord and our God, we thank you so much that you, just, you haven't just given us promises, but you've proven your ability to keep your word. Lord, help us in the midst of a, a crazy and chaotic time to look to Christ, look to the cross, look to the gospel, And there find our peace and our comfort. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand together and sing as we move towards the end of our service a song called Behold Our God.